The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Is off track with Hinch and Rossi. Alex, you uh, you're getting into it on Twitter this week, dude. People are dumb, and like I, just, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't let this one go. Hello and welcome. <laughs> there it is. Probably ranting episode of Off Track, but I don't want it to be. Um, listen, I'm okay with it. Back in 2020, when we were all confined to our homes and racing didn't exist, you're all very familiar with the. The little league that was started called LCQ League that featured myself, James, Connor, Ed Carpenter, Travis Pastrana, Chris Lake, Parker Kligerman, Scott Speed, Brandon, Brandon Semenuk. Right. A lot of lot of lot of names. We had a lot of fun. I like Landon Castle a lot. I like Parker a lot. I have nothing but they're great dudes. Good race car drivers. And I think that Landon's tweet today, yesterday, was pretty misguided and i took offense to it not okay so what what was the tweet so the tweet do i have to pull it up yeah i guess i have to pull it up it says nascar drivers are the most versatile professional racing drivers in the world more surfaces racing styles track types than any other series is is really f1 which fine f1 is a true specialist focused on singular style of racing while a modern cup series driver must be a jack of all trades. And then goes on to say that IndyCar drivers are more versatile than F1 drivers, V8 supercar drivers rally, and probably most other forms of motorsports, but certainly not more versatile than a cup series driver. So I guess the only way you can make that argument is you could say cup will occasionally race on dirt and you guys don't. Right. But I here here's here's. I'm not the, saying I agree. I'm just trying to figure out. Here's, here's the counter argument to it. Yes, they they race on dirt and we don't. They also race on a majority of ovals. Now we all know that ovals are are all independent. Like the, just because it's an oval doesn't mean it's the same. Mm-hmm. But I would find it really hard to argue that they have more than four different types of styles of, of track. So you've got your mile and a half in NASCAR. You've got your super short, your Bristols. You've got your road courses and you have your super speedways. So that's four. Yeah. 
We have four street courses, road courses, short ovals, and super speedways. They might, they might, again, playing devil's advocate, they yeah. might add like mile tracks that are, you know, your Phoenix, your, your, uh, I think Dover's like the ones that are bigger than the half miles, like the Richmond's or the sure. Bristol's, but yeah. So yeah, <clears throat> five at best. But I mean, technically, I mean, you could then argue that Iowa and gateway are a different category. Yeah, for sure. Right. So, I mean, yeah. So five, four or five for each. Okay. But where I think that there's a big difference and discrepancy in terms of the, the term versatile is the fact, and, and it, it was really proven in the COVID times when all the series had to adapt and cup could legitimately just show up and roll off the truck and take the green flag and race. No practice, no qualifying, no qualifying time on track was getting the green green flag racing. And for me, that means the operating window to be not only successful, but to like survive, to, to do a lap at a somewhat competitive pace is much bigger than any other form of motorsports. There's no other form of motorsports that can do that. Formula One certainly can't. IndyCar certainly can't. IMSA certainly can't. So because of that, you're... Your, your, your performance is at a much higher or it's a, it's a more finite peak, okay, across the same different types of tracks, four to five categories of tracks. So to say that I can race on five different tracks and my window is this big, so that makes me super versatile versus racing on these four or five different tracks, but my window is this big, it's like that's not, that's not a, that's not a, real statement. And then when you also look at some of, I mean, we talked about it, the, the racing quality that they have at road courses, I would argue that those guys have absolutely no clue how to race on a road course. There's certainly some guys that do. Yeah. But yeah. I was going to say that, that's a bit that, of a bold say, but okay. But let's be honest. Jordan Taylor yes, had no, never seen a cup car in his life. Okay. Yes. And he qualified sixth. Right. No, no. So that's, that's, yes, that, that's saying that they are they are certainly more versed and they are better at driving a cup car on ovals, right? Yes, I think okay. there are but even Alex, more. What points would you know about support. versatility in motorsport? <laughs> so there are um, there are other arguments I think to support your point. Uh, one of them being. Well, yes, you could talk about the uh, array of different types of tracks NASCAR has. Um, and even with the the massive uptick in road course usage lately, uh, you know, went from like two a year. I think they've got five now, something like that. Um, majority and overwhelming, you know, it's five out of 38, right, are road courses. So you're still mostly on ovals. Yes, some are concrete, some are asphalt, some are mile and a half, some are half mile, whatever. It's a lot closer than the difference between, you know, a road course and a street course or an oval and a road course. Um, And when you look at how the NASCAR season plays out, so it's an overwhelming majority are still ovals, which again, they are all different and they all race differently for sure. But you're 
championship, your playoffs only has one road course in it. And your finale is, is, you know, on an oval, which is what majority of your season is spent doing. So, you know, yeah, that doesn't really make it seem as versatile. And then furthermore, you look at drivers, like when I think of versatility, I think of drivers that can drive different things fast, right? So I look at a guy like you, I look at a guy like Scott Dixon, that can jump in sports cars, can jump in off-road trucks, can jump in anything that they've Scott jumped McLaughlin. in. And Scott McLaughlin, touring car, like anything, and be competitive in all of it. And we've definitely had some examples of NASCAR drivers that have come to IndyCar and been competitive on ovals. Uh, we have not had a version of that where NASCAR drivers came over and have been competitive on a road course. Not a, not a shot, just a fact. Um, not many have tried, granted. Um, we have seen but I also don't way. see them, but I don't see them jumping into sports cars and winning Daytona very often. I know it's been done. Like I know Jeff Gordon won a 24. Yeah. But, um, I know other, but he, yeah, but he did, yeah. but he didn't. Right. He I know he was on a car effort and drove the absolute yep. minimum amount of time, three seconds off the pace. Right. Which is the difference Seriously. between like a Scott Dixon who goes and does it and is like a badass. He's the guy that like finishes the, the race. And he's sometimes. like, right. They put him in for four hours in the middle of the night because he's going right. to just kill it not, and not, not, make not literally trying 100%. to meet the minimum time to then park him. Right. So I, I do think obviously cup drivers are some of the most talented drivers on earth. And look, we've seen a lot of open wheel guys try to go do ovals in a cup car and absolutely so I'm not saying that it's not incredibly difficult or that an open wheel driver or a sports car driver is better at doing that or could learn that faster. The, the, the other example, and I, I, I love Chase Elliott. He's, he's, I think, one of the best cup drivers of our generation. He is phenomenal in everything cup related. He came to Daytona in a Whalen Cadillac DPI car, race winning car. And he hated every minute of it. He was like, I can't do it. And he, he felt right. bad because he felt like he was letting the team down type of thing. And this wasn't, he wasn't upset about it. He was just like, man, it's, it's too far away from, from what I'm doing. But the same, the, but you, you touched on it. I could not go get in a cup car. We tried. Yeah. <laughs> I could not get in a cup car. So it's, it's BS because quite honestly, None of us are really that versatile. All of these mo forms of motorsports are incredibly specialized. Yes, you have outliers. Yeah. Me and Scott and Scott can jump from an Indy car to a DPI car. It's pretty much the same thing, right? I can go and get into an off-road truck. It, there's, I mean, that's there's really no talent to that. It's just bravery. Okay, <laughs> I go get no. I go get in a BA supercar. Get my ass handed to me, right? So like. I'm not saying that I'm more versatile than Chase Elliott. All I'm saying is that don't make this statement that NASCAR drivers are so much exceptionally more versatile than any other form of motorsports. It's yeah. BS. I, I, think it, I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think their specialized talent is exceptional, but historically speaking, when they jump into other stuff, it takes them longer to do it because it's further removed from a cup car on an oval right? There's certainly a lot more right. parallels between an Indy car on a road course and a DPI car on a road course, or even a GT car, 
right? Like right. that that's why I like Dixon as an example, because you know, Dixon did the prototype stuff, sure. And yes, you can argue that makes sense that he's quick and a lot of guys coming out of open wheel would be quick. But then when Ganassi lost the prototype program and switched to the four GTs and he's now driving a GT car, still very quick, still winning a lot of races. Where there's still a lot Scott of Dixon. good skills, still Scott Dixon. There's still there's a lot of good open wheel guys that are great in open wheel, good in high horsepower, high downforce cars that switched to GT cars and really struggled because it's not the same. So and there's guys, yeah, there's guys, yeah. I'm sure there's a guy or two in Cup that could do that. Like, may, like maybe there is, right? But to just make the blanket statement that all Cup drivers are more versatile than all other racing drivers is is very well, narrow narrow sighted. It felt to me like just engagement bait. It felt for like, sure. Hey, I'm just going to say something ridiculous just to get. No, 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 no. I don't. Th- I don't no, think. Look, I don't think he was trying to say something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he was trying to say something ridiculous. Again, I like Landon a lot, and he's a very talented driver. I uh, I think that he wanted to spark conversation. Okay. I think that he does believe that to a certain extent. I don't think it was like a clickbait thing because he's just trying to get more people tuning into his Twitter. I really think that he ha- he thinks he's got an argument for it, and he wanted to start a conversation, and that's, and that's what we're having. Not a you know, not attacking anybody, not you know, trying to start anything. Just if you look at the facts, I would disagree with that as a blanket statement. Yes, I mean, I think I think motorsports now is so competitive, and there are. It is so difficult to be at the top that, quite quite frankly, there, there's there's no one that's just going to no. switch from one to the other. Yeah, I, I mean, would, you have. I would say. You I would, have to I would be say. Specialized. I would say that, quite honestly, the most probably the most versatile driver of Fernando all Alonso. Is, is no Verstappen. Oh yeah, that's probably true. And Dude, do you want to know who else driver. actually? Do you want to know? Do you want to know who else? <laughs> Good point. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna back that one up even more because in that thread, one of the things that that Landon didn't mention in the original tweet uh, was rally racing, but he kind of got to that when somebody mentioned it. Kimi Raikkonen, uh, uh, Robert Kubica, both got into rally cars and were very competitive, like very quickly. That's Dude. not an easy thing to do. That's a very difficult thing to do. F1 is boring, but the majority of those dudes are badass. They're very so like, good. They're they very, do, yeah. very good at driving vehicles. Yeah. So. But you're right. I think everything is so specialized now. It's gone are the days where Mario or AJ or whatever could just jump into a sprint car one day, an Indy car the next day, an NASCAR the next day, an F1 car the next day, and, and all just be running up front. It's dude, we could go to the go-kart track and we'd get our ass handed to us by a 14-year-old kid. Because I they've did. done I would like to watch yeah. that. <laughs> oh, dude, I did in oh. like October. I, I went and did the Florida Winter wax. Tour. Yeah, yeah, I went to the Florida Winter Tour back in like 2013. I'd been in a go-kart in eight years or something. And yeah, I got I got my ass absolutely handed to me. And as it should be, because those people are driving go-karts every week for the last 10 years. And yes, that's how it goes. So yeah, it's it's there's there are, you're right, there are no there's no way to prove that. There's no way to make that statement. It's kind of irrelevant because everything's just way too individual these days. Mm-hmm. Anyway. All right. Well, now that we've um, covered that. Shut up, Landon. <laughs> I've got. <laughs> Don't shut up, Landon. We love Landon. Um, so since this is a travel podcast, I got a travel story. Let's hear it. We're all kind of tired today, it seems like, by the way. I feel really? like you're tired today. I'm tired. Maybe yeah, I'm say, he's, he's, he's fired up. No, I so I... Pipe, I had a uh, 
I had an interesting travel experience yesterday on the way home from Barber. Okay. So Alex is cocking his head because we traveled together. We flew at Alex's his plane, big private putt, plane guy. Putt putt, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so, which of his fleet did he take? Is the hawker? Yeah, I. I <laughs> <laughs> so no, guys. I so we didn't talk about this. Like we we landed late, and we like as soon as we landed, we all just sort of dispersed. I said thanks for the trip and and dispersed. And Ed was Ed was there too. And um, so I got to fly. It was actually my first time in the new in the new putt putt. And um, I didn't get a chance to talk to Alex about this or congratulate him really on what was probably the most (laughs) impressive landing. I have personally been a part of in my vast travel career. We uh, we came in in some weather into land, and though I will, and I'm saying this with all sincerity, I never, I never like doubted we were going to get down okay. But in the last sort of 120 seconds of the flight, there were a few brief moments of probably the most heightened panic I've had on an airplane in my life. Like I, I didn't like, I didn't react. Like I was like, okay. Like I had full confidence, but it did. I didn't love the way the plane was jostling around aggressively. The like 30 degree yaw angle. We were sliding towards the runway on and Alex and Ed were both just sitting there calm as anything and doing their things and landed the plane. Totally fine. Perfectly fine in rain, wind, whatever. So I just want to applaud you on a very impressive landing that you admitted afterwards. You're like, I think that's the most sideways I've ever come in to a landing that was, before. That was by far the hardest landing I've ever had. <laughs> that was going to be my question was how was it from your perspective? <laughs> Fine. Um, like it wasn't, there wasn't ever a point where I was like concerned, but like I had to like, I had to work for it. Like I had to earn it. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it was some effort. What was I was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fine. Um, One way or another, the plane was going to go down. Yeah, yeah the plane Dude, was going to A hundred percent of aircraft to take off, return to earth. So like, <laughs> All right, well, where's Amelia's plane? Copy. Um, but no, I, I, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say. I'm, I'm glad you have faith, James. I will, ne- I'll, I'll, I'll always do my best for you. But, Dude, it's um, but I, I mean that so so sincerely. Like that plane was moving around more than I've because, yeah. like you know, you fly in and weather on a big commercial plane and it moves, but right. it's, it's different. Yeah. It is different yeah. when you're in something that feels like you're in a phone booth, basically. Well, yeah, I mean it's four thousand pounds versus right four hundred thousand pounds, whatever. It is. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I but I genuinely never I was never worried about getting down. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh god, I really don't like this feeling. And it was just, yeah, yeah you, when you were like, you were so sideways, you were looking out of Ed's side of the windscreen to get to get down at one point. I'm like, man, this is a, this is a trip. And the well, best part was one of Ed's kids was in the back fast asleep, didn't yeah. even wake up through the whole thing. Because like at one point, so I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting like my, I'm like back to back with the pilots, right? So I'm kind of facing the back of the plane. So I'm turning around and like, I'm that dude in between their shoulders, like checking out what's happening on the way in. And at one point I was like, man, I should probably check on Cruz. Like he might be a little like freaked out. And I turn around kids just fast asleep. I'm like, God, he is so much cooler than I am. It's like kids that ski. 
like they just have no concept of like, oh, this could break a bone or anything. So they're just like, uh, let it loose. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, it was good. Like that plane, it's, it, it, the capabilities of it are pretty amazing. Like to be able, I mean, we flew in, it, I mean, it wasn't heavy, but like we flew in some pretty decent ice and, and the plane just really absorbs it well and, and it has the systems to kind of counteract it. And, um, yeah, it just it makes it makes life easier when you have equipment that is at a certain level. So there you go, yeah, man. All right. Well, speaking of equipment at a certain level, let's talk about your equipment at Barber Motorsports Park this past weekend. How yeah. was your weekend, man? I I feel like I'm turning into an optimistic person, which is weird. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's gonna that's gonna be the end of this podcast. Yeah, you can't have two. Of them. <laughs> this is the last episode. <laughs> Uh, or James, you got to take a, a hard negative turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 180 <laughs> degrees. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, went into Barber with, I would say, cautious optimism, um, but not really high expectations because, you know, I don't love the place. Um, I didn't, I don't really, I didn't really have an understanding of what our road course car was going to be like. Obviously that car has been incredibly competitive there the past couple of years. So like I knew it was going to be decent. Um, but really through the whole weekend, uh, minus a, a small little snafu and qualifying, like we're, we just every, every single lap and session, everyone is just getting better. And, and the, the level of competitiveness is increasing. And like, none of us are really happy with where we're at. And we're like knocking on the door of, 
fast sixes and, and racing the guys that we should be racing in terms of your wills and Josephs and Scotts and Scotts and et cetera. So, um, I, I'm, I'm just really pleased with, with the progression, man. It's hard to make steps sometimes, um, in this championship with the limited laps and, and, you know, the versatile tracks that we go to and the ever changing tires that Firestone brings, which is always a, a challenge. Um, and like, we're just, we're just continuing to make steps forward. So I, I'm really happy with, with how everything's going. And I say that with the utmost honesty and I'm, I'm actually really excited for the NDGP here in two weeks. Yeah. You've had some success there in the past. Certainly. Um, one of the Rare. things that, but yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> a rare, a rare flash of success. Right. Um, one of the things we always talk about when we go to Barber, and we talked about a bunch in the broadcast, is just the physicality of that place, right? Like long, fast corners. The G's are incredibly high, all that sort of stuff. Um, but you made a comment to me after the race, which I thought was really fascinating, because the you know the race was really dominated. All, all the talk of the race was dominated by the two stop versus the three stop, right? And if you watch the broadcast, that was really what we were doing was keeping track of those two different. Uh, strategies as they played out but as you know you know when you're doing a fuel save the the physicality goes down like exponentially it's just so much easier when you're sort of you're not cruising but like in racing terms you're kind of cruising it's still very hard and you're still pushing or whatever but it's just a different kind of of effort required so many guys in the field went on the three stopper which is flat out go for it pushing the whole time that takes a lot out of you and I was expecting some of the three stoppers when they got out of the car to be a little more beat than they looked. So like you were a three stopper physically from a physicality standpoint, you said it wasn't too bad. No, it wasn't. And I, I mean, we touched on this last night flying home. I think, I think most of the time Barber's pretty warm. Um, you know, it's still early in the year, but like it's, it's South and so it's it's not rare to see 77 to 82 degree sunny days and the race is always late because we're on the central time zone so you're kind of at the peak of the day when you do it um and then yes combined with the high speed corners and the downforce of an indy car and the aero screen and all this stuff it's historically been a very hard race but we were blessed with 69 67 to 69 degree weather um, and I think that that's really the differentiating factor, you know, like it's amazing to me that 10 degrees of ambient temperature can have that big of an effect on the physical exertion required and how much harder your body is just inherently having to work to cool itself down. Like that's, I think that's really all that it is because I've done a two stop there in an 85 degree day and like, it's been fine, but I've been pretty beat. I did a three stop yesterday on a, on a 69 degree day and could have done it again, you know? So I think I, it's gotta be, that's gotta be a chunk of it. You know, it's so fascinating, eh? Like how the body works, because I've noticed the same thing in a race car. I noticed the same thing, just training. Like if I go for a run and it's 80 degrees outside and I do that same run two days later and it's 65 degrees outside, the pace at which you can run at 65 degrees versus 80 is incredible. Like the body is like an engine. It's got a good yeah. operating temperature, and above yeah. that, it starts losing power, and that's exactly what happens in the motor of a race car. And it's it's crazy to to like see it like that. I just I was not expecting it there of all places. It, was, it is fascinating. Well, I think I think that's also why initially, until 
you know, we all started to adapt our training and add more vents to the car and all this stuff. The aero screen was such a big hit and it surprised people because they're like, surely it can't be that big of a difference. And it's like, well, it doesn't necessarily take that big of a difference. If the ambient right. temperature in the cockpit goes up eight degrees, like that could be, who knows, 10, 10 beats for your heart, like 10, 10 beats per minute. So it, it's, um, it's something that's, I think, hard to train for, but I think it, it's certainly something that if you had the ability to train in like super hot conditions all the time, you'd certainly have an advantage, but those dang Floridians here nor there. Um, yeah. Uh, but so, so yeah, good. I was just going to say, I, I feel like we should talk about the race. I feel like it, I haven't watched it. It's, it seemed like it should have been a good race. I don't really know. It was a good race. It was, it was okay. a good race. It was, it was um, a very interesting race. It's, you know, Barber, you always run that risk, right? Of, of, because it, it is tough to pass sometimes. And because it's been historically a, a two stop race winning strategy, it, it, it's, it's just, it's so fascinating because you have on paper, when you just look at the simple math, the three stopper is faster, period. One of the shortest pit lanes that we have all year. So the delta of time loss is really small. You can make that time up on track. Awesome. That said, yellows throw that for a loop and getting stuck behind cars running two stops throws that for a loop. So if you can't get passes done and get into some clean air, uh, the three stop is hard to pull off. And even though it's faster on paper, since this race moved to a 90 lap race, the two stop strategy has won every single time. So before the race, it was really fascinating talking to a lot of the teams and drivers about what they were going to do because last year, Joseph and Colton were kind of the first guys to dive in and commit to the three stop pretty early in the race and had a yellow not fallen when it did for Callum Eilat, they were probably going to win. They were, one of those two was going to win. It was really working. They were getting the clean air when they needed it. They were getting past cars when they needed to. It was going very well. A yellow threw that whole thing for a loop and sort of ruined it. And so that's what was so tough is all these teams and engineers, they knew that was the better strategy on paper, but just a yellow at the wrong time is going to hurt you, whatever. So you always sort of assume that the drivers starting right up front, were going to go for the two stop just because it is the slightly more conservative one and they've got the track position, but it was how far down the order are we going to go before we see the first three stopper last year? I want to say it was like, I forget where Joseph and Colton started ninth, 10th, 11th, somewhere around there. Well, the three Penske's roll up to the grid on primaries and kind of make it obvious that that's what they're going to do. So McLaughlin started fourth and he committed to a three stopper right off the bat. And it just, it made for a great race, man, watching those guys try to cut through, get the laps when uh, the clean laps when they could. And the last stint is when it got really exciting because it was basically a St. Pete re, you know, remake, like St. Pete 2.0 Grosjean was leading had led all day, had really kind of been in control of the race on that two-stop strategy. McLaughlin got around him on that last pit sequence. Grosjean threw a sick pass on Scott's outlap to get the lead back, but he was still saving fuel. He was out of push to pass, and eventually McLaughlin passed him back a few laps later and, and took the win. But you know, Grosjean, for, for all he's done right this year to have come so close again and end up with a second place, you know, it is kind of tough. He was the first of the two stoppers. It's the first time the two-stop strategy didn't win. He was 20 seconds ahead of the next best two-stopper. But it just was a three-stopper day. 
It's just one of those things. So I have two questions. Uh, admittedly, where I was watching the race, it was hard to hear, so I couldn't really hear what I'm sure was you expertly explaining this. So sorry if, if you already covered it. I thought from watching practice and quals that it was going to be a primary tire race and everybody was just going to use their alternates once and then stick on the primaries. That didn't happen. So uh, what was the deal? Dude. So did everybody else. <laughs> I'm, I'm still head tripping. So in 2022, it was a, it was a alternate race, but okay. that was kind of an oddity. You know, there's, there's pretty high tire egg, especially front tire egg at Barber. Um, and, you know, again, the two stopper usually is the preferred strategy. So you don't have to push on the tires as hard and the alternate is quicker. So last year, the alternate tire was preferred tire. In 2021, the alternate tire was absolute garbage. Different tire. No. In 2021 and 2022, the tire was different. All right. Sorry, sorry. Yes. But in 2023, we were on the 2021 tire. Correct. So we all went Conventional into Conventional wisdom race. was it was going to be garbage like it was in 21. Correct. And kind of all of the metrics kind of seem to point that direction. You never really know until you get to Sunday, but a really good, a really good kind of um, indication is in the fast six on used reds. If the red tire is good and going to be durable for the race, you usually can match or be within like a 10th, a 10th and a half of what you did in round two on new reds. In 2021, um, Pato was on pole was like four and a half tenths off his time in the fast six as he was in round two. In 2022, Renus was on pole and matched his round two time to his fast six time. In 2022, the red tire was fine for the race. It was a preferred tire, no problem. In 2021, it was not. So conventional wisdom said there's no chance the red is going to be the tire. Then first pit stop, Will Power puts on used alternates. And it's like good to very good. And I think <laughs> that that certainly surprised people. But then there was also cars like Colton who couldn't make new reds last. So I was kind of in this conundrum personally, and I decided, like, screw it. I'm going to put used reds on at the end, which used reds for me on a road course have never been kind, minus the Indy GP. And they were significantly better. And I think the reason for it is the black tire was just really bad. Um, <clears throat> Do you think the cooler temps played into it at all? I don't, I don't know, but the, but, but any time a used red is better than the black is usually when there's a huge pace offset black threads, i.e. in DGP. Right. And man, I put on, I put on the, the primary tire for the third stint and it was horrifying. Like it was, that's really what cost us a lot of the race. Cause unfortunately we had that restart in there. So I lost a lot of track position to guys that happened to be on reds. And then we just didn't really have any pace. And so when we put on used reds, we were kind of already in eighth and we finished eighth. So um, I, I'm still trying to understand how Penske knew that that was an option. They clearly, they clearly knew something that, that others didn't because they all started on primaries 
with the intention of doing a three stop. So, okay. So I, I've, I've thought about this and I've looked into this a little bit. I think that they were genuinely concerned that if there was no yellows, they were really going to struggle to make a two stop work from a fuel number standpoint. Sure. It does seem like maybe there's a small advantage to Honda and fuel mileage this year with the change in fuel. I don't know if that's true. That's just between Long Beach and then a little bit here. That seems to be maybe a, a case. Um, so I think for sure they were committing to three stoppers off the bat. What, yeah. <clears throat> Why I don't think they all knew that the Reds were necessarily the hot ticket, the used Reds were the hot ticket, was McLaughlin got a radio transmission at some point saying, we'll try the used Reds. They're good. We should go with those kind of thing. So I think because they were three stopping – you can have a pretty short stint. You can you can have one that's really short if you want, right? And yeah. so maybe the 12 car was like, all right, well, let's roll the dice here. This doesn't have to be a long stint, even though they're used reds. We'll just see what we've got. But you're wrong yes, because he started on primaries and stopped on 12. So yeah, that second stint had to be long. It had to be at least 24, 25 laps. You can't do two 12-lap stints. Yeah, that's true, actually, because his first one was short. Yeah, you're right. So, like, I would un- I would understand that completely if he started on used reds and was like, well, I, well, right. we can bail on nine if we have to. But he didn't. He started on primaries, still put it on 12, and bolted on used reds. So they knew they were going to last. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. At least 24, which is crazy. But, like, again, like, it, I, I don't know if it's new or they took a punt because the, the threes yeah. did not have that in their original game plan. It it's didn't sound like it. It's just fascinating to take a like I, for me because we we kind of talked about it and bounced the idea around of like well we could start on use reds and always get off of them if it goes like now I'll tell you it's like, like the, the, the number part. of the the number of times like like used reds is like a swear word to me like I know I, you know then it's like the worst thing you can say to a driver is like oh we're gonna put on used reds like. No, no, you're not. You're not doing that. You sure do aren't. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but man, so it's, it was yeah. You're crazy. right. Great, right. and and look, it, was, it worked super well. He got himself up to a podium. So Penske won three. Great job. Well, McLaughlin used used reds as well. Yeah, after oh, Will told him it worked. No, for sure. Um, so, yeah. but Tim, uh, Tim, I got to give you credit. That's very. That's very astute. It's an astute of you observation. To that. Uh, yeah. I got to say, I was I watched it with uh, my buddies Doug and Zach, who are both the JPLers. So I felt like I was watching a lot more uh, detailed than I usually would. <laughs> like they they. Uh, so what you're saying is you had somebody that, smart and knowledgeable about racing that you yeah, were watching it turns with. Out so that's that really their question. The jet propulsion laboratory are kind of smart. Who would have known? Yeah. Um, yeah. Then I did. Anybody would have done that. On, the uh, the yellow flag and just if you guys have any thoughts about when they throw yellows, but I also want yes. to talk about the fact that it's May and we're running out of time. Dude, it's May. Yeah, like, there's so much time it's to talk gonna, about May. It's gonna be May for like 30 days. Don't worry about it. 31 even. 31. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So let, I'll explain the rule, and then Alex, you can give your opinion on it. So basically, we've had this discussion. Say, a few years ago. A car stops, whatever happens, a yellow flag comes out immediately, pits are closed. And a lot of drivers, a couple in particular, very vocal about hating having Will yellow power. come out. Yeah, I mean, Will was very vocal about it because in his defense, for I'm, 10 years, he got he was screwed on pole. more than anybody. He was on pole yeah. half the races, yeah. On pole, saving fuel, going long, and then would get bit by a yellow flag and end up you know, cycling out mid-pack. So 
he was a big proponent of not closing the pits under yellow. In a lot of cases, that's not practical. From a safety standpoint, if there's an accident, you got to have the yellow right away, get the safety team on track, all those things. Mm-hmm. So we don't have, you know, we, we don't want to go down the virtual safety car route, which is something obviously that they do in F1 and they do in WEC and whatever. Um, I mean, we do. We just don't have the infrastructure to do it. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. But oh, uh, no, that's so- not an insult of any car. That's more the tracks. Yeah, I mean, fair. Fair. Frankly. Yeah. yeah. It, it is, it's not as easy for us to do that. Um, so, you know, Kyle Novak, the race director has been a big proponent of trying to throw as few yellows as possible. We've seen some incidents over the last couple of years since he took over where you would have seen a yellow in the past and didn't this time try to kind of help that cause. So after a lot of discussion and debate, there was sort of a compromise raised, which is if there, and these aren't hard written rules, but these are sort of guidelines. If there is contact with a car and another car or the wall or whatever, and it leads to a situation where there needs to be a yellow, regardless of where we are in the pit sequence, IndyCar is inclined to throw the yellow because contact can lead to driver injuries, even if it's subtle, whatever. So if a driver hits a wall or hits another car and goes off, the the conventional wisdom is we'll go yellow immediately. The caveat being, if the car is a mechanical failure or a spin in a stall, there's no contact. It is in a safe place. It is visible. It is offline. And we're in the middle of a pit sequence. IndyCar will leave the the track green for essentially one full lap, give everybody the chance to come around and pit before they go yellow to retrieve the car. That's essentially what we had at Barber. Stingray Rob had a mechanical issue, pulled off to the side of the racetrack, the three stoppers were getting close to needing a stop anyway. Uh, and so at the, at Other the risk around. of, Oh no, you're right. The, you're right. You're right. No, yeah. you're right. I'm sorry. So rather than if the yellow had just come out immediately, it would have buried them all. Well, except Joseph, cause he got in pretty quick, but it would have essentially buried the three stoppers and, and ruined exactly what happened last year, basically. So they left it open for a, a, lap the three stoppers were able to get in and then the yellow flew which really did kind of sort of advantage the three stoppers in a sense because it closed closed the field up in a way they didn't want the yellow yet they wanted more laps to be able to build a bigger gap before that stop yeah i would have taken so it was sort of right yeah it was it was sort of a it was sort of a there were some benefits there were some drawbacks regardless that was the decision made and Per the rules as we've discussed them and the guidelines as they were discussed in the preseason meetings, IndyCar sort of followed what we have discussed, which I think is important, right? It it helps the teams understand what's coming and make those decisions. So I know you said you would have preferred no yellow, but how do you feel about that call? 100% the right call. And and I applaud Kyle um, for trying to preserve as much of the true aspect of the race as possible. Sometimes... Bad luck happens. You got to throw a yellow. You got to get someone to attend to someone. It's we've talked about even small hits. You have no idea. Driver safety is number one priority. It happens. It's part of it's part of the game. You know. You feel like you get burned by it more than you get helped, but it's probably ends up being a wash. Long story short, it's a it's a it's a part of the rules when it goes against you. But I think. <laughs> No, but I think that to minimize that as much as possible when there is no driver at risk is the ex- correct thing to do. I think that 
there. I think it was perfect. So thank you to Kyle. Thank you to IndyCar for listening to us because you don't want, you want some races to be a lottery. You know, you want some races to be a gamble. It's entertaining. It mixes it up, but you don't want them all to be like that. And, and that gets tiresome as well. So yeah, you're, 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 good. you're preserving the integrity of the race, right? These, Correct. these teams and drivers went for that strategy trying to win and the yellow just eliminates it, you know, if you don't give them yeah. the chance to pit. So it's like, it's, it's not a manufactured result, but it's definitely an affected result when sure. you can just wait one lap and let it play out a little more organically. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think it was hundred percent the right call. And uh, it's, it's, it's great when we have those conversations and it leads to, you know, meaningful changes to the rules and, and procedures and things like that. So, and I mean, it's, um, it's kind of, it's, it's because Kyle is, is so on board with it. Like he's actually almost taken it the other way sometimes, you know, we've, we, we talked about the Kirkwood crash in mid Ohio last year and everything. So it's, it's cool to see a race director trying to take it each situation at a time and really, analyze where they are at in the race. Cause also if you're not in a pit sequence or anything, like he sometimes will throw a yellow cause it's not going to affect anything. So he's got a very good understanding of kind of what's happening and trying not to, to be a factor in that. So, and it sounds like job. as long as it's consistent, but not an easy job. Yeah. As long as it's consistent and they're following these guidelines, then yeah. And yeah, that's it. That's all you can ask for. All right. Um, all right. Well, well, I was going to say, while we sit here recording, we are officially into May which is very exciting. There's a buzz in the air. There's a, there's a, there's not, something. there's a lot of rain and clouds. Yeah. Here yeah, too. There's a lot of that. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty miserable, but yeah, let's pretty get that buzzless. out of the way now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty buzz free. Yeah. Um, but no, are you, uh, Oh, uh, did you watch Azerbaijan? I did. And why don't we talk about it later? Cause I have to go to the airport right, well, to not fly myself. Oh, you're going to fly commercial like us peasants, huh? <laughs> Poor guy. No, no. I, that jet is waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have my jet certification yet. All right. Well, well you we have fun in Vegas. Like just a little relatable chime that we can put up. Yeah. Whenever you guys <laughs> <laughs> like that. And no, you can't use the NBC chime to do that either. Uh, well, cool. Well, hey, man. Good job in Barber. Um, I guess. I, have, mean, I mean, hey, you, you finished. You finished I mean, better than better Long than, Beach. It's better than the past <laughs> two events. <laughs> you, you kept all three of your, uh, or all four of your wheels on the ground. Oh, yeah. And like props to NBC for anyone who was watching warm up on, uh, on Peacock. We had a, an off track shout out where they played a clip of the show uh, of Alex explaining what happened to his car in Long Beach. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for that. That was great. But yes, tune in. And oh, uh, I'm sure you've noticed by now, if you haven't, we are doing recap shows on the, uh, the hundred days to indie CW reality show. And so, uh, one will be coming out tonight. Uh, if you're listening on Thursday, nine o'clock Eastern on the CW again, they are available on the CW app, which is free to download the day after the show. So if you don't catch it or you don't get CW download the app, if you're in the United States, if you're outside the United States, we're still working on that. They're, they've got international distribution deals coming. It's just not done yet. Bear with us. But yeah, tune in Thursday. Watch the show. As soon as the show drops 10 p.m. Eastern, or sorry, as soon as the show ends 10 p.m. Eastern, we drop the recap show. So uh, check back in and listen to what we think of episode two of 100 Days to the This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Off Track is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. We're at Ask Off Track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown. He's Alexander Rossi. And if you want to follow Fim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at the Tim Durham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. Off Track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Fim. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.